Do you just cry when you sit with the papers Thinking about what it's like and take away from us We're on a course for a head-on collision Scientists said this is what we've been missing Sorry that research is not for submission Friend Roger's dead and we'll be the one to listen Can't take the heat, now the planet is your kitchen She's like you're stuck in a contest of pissing Time to trade in Congress for a new edition You know, something that actually kind of bugs me is when I'm I'm in a conversation and I say something like they say, blah, blah, blah. They say, when you fall in love, you'll know it, right? It, they say, the ice caps are melting at an, um, at an alarming rate. Like your friend will come back at you and say, give me the facts, give me the figures, who is they? What is they? What do you mean? They pretend like you don't, like they have no idea what you're saying because you can't give them the example, right? And it's such a detriment to a conversation. Like there are a time, there's a time and a place where maybe citing sources is very necessary. Lectures, and I don't even know if citing the sources are extremely pertinent as long as like in the speech or or in the conversation, as long as you can provide them footnotes and whatnot after. I always hated formatting papers. Maybe that's where it stems from all the college work and annotations and and shit that really bogs you down. Because I didn't care, you know. You make your list, you put it on there. That shit never stuck for me. But whatever, it's understandable for a college paper. I get it. I don't like doing it. I get it for that case. I get it if I'm really delivering a lecture, you know, to science minds who need to know or it would be beneficial for them to know where that came from because they might know the reference. But where this happens, where it aggravates me is in like, just shooting the shit, like having a normal conversation with a friend of mine. You know, like, who is they, right? You know, or somebody who, especially with an opposing view, because this gets us nowhere. Like, a better way forward is to add to it. Like, oh, yeah, I heard something similar. And then, like, give the sort, if you have that on top of your mind, right? Because often people are just trying to prove you're wrong because they have an idea what you're talking about. And they want to see you slip up to be like, hi, I knew you didn't. Like, what What good is that? Like, show me where you got, like, tell me the reference. Be like, oh, yeah. And I'll be like, oh. That's the one I was talking about. Or, oh no, but and it might jog my memory. That wasn't it, but oh, now I remember. 
It was a NASA study I saw. Oh, it was from Romeo and Juliet where I really found out what love meant, right? Whatever it is. Or if you have an opposing view with the fact and figure, present that. Sway me a little bit. But what I would like, try to start building a conversation. Conversations are creating shared meaning. Meaning that there is like no exact, like right or wrong answer, and and especially in between a conversation between two companions, because these were a lot of ideas that are just being shuffled back and forth, and how you mean something might not be exactly how the other person would take it. They've developed their own meaning because of their own experience with whatever subject or word or topic you were tackling at the moment. So that's something that like we can do to help build better conversations is instead of saying, hey, who is they? Just keep adding to the conversation. It's kind of like that yes and concept that they preach in improv. Right, go with it. Yeah, all right. So, this also. Not know who stopped. Who is they? Give me facts, give me figures right now on the spot, off the top of your head, because our brains don't exactly work 100% like that, right? We know this. We remember, like, the emotion, how things make us feel a lot more than facts and figures stick out. Some people have more of an ability to remember facts and figures, timelines, dates, and resources like that, references that way. But especially when we're just in a friendly conversation, we're definitely talking more from that emotional uh, place. Like, we're, yeah, we're talking about concepts. We're talking about ideas. And those are easily more referenced to get into the flow of a good conversation. So we do ourselves a detriment by demanding facts and figures on the spot. And if you have facts and figures to add to, find a way to inject those into the conversation in a helpful manner oh yeah here here's some information to play with what does this make you think of yeah like i saw a graph on uh, climate watch daily or well i read some nicholas sparks books and this is what they said on love and this really kind of drove that same point home or it made me think of it not in the same way that you'll know love when you find it I read over here that love is a chore. <laughs> so find find ways to add to the conversation that way, not just the man. They say, who is they? Here's an example that's come up frequently, for me anyways, is that the, the topic of multitasking will come up, whether at work or whether we're driving, Whatever it is, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell a person that, you know, there is no real, we don't really multitask. Right? That's There's a thing called the multitasking myth, that our brains don't do that. And they'll be like, no, it does. I'm a great multitasker. I just process it faster. I'm good at ba da ba 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 well, no, well, they say that that doesn't happen. Well, who's saying? Because they don't want to hear it. Because they know they're the, the queen multitasker, the the king multitasker. 
nobody's better than me. Supercomputer. Like, I guess even computers don't really multitask. They have to on and off, on and off, on and off. They process very fast, and this is what doctors show, right? This is what they say. They being people like Jordan Grafman from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. They, people who study stuff like this, say that the, you know, <coughs> this myth stems from the ability of part of the frontal lobe to toggle back and forth among simple tasks in as little as a few hundredths of a millisecond. And then some more complex tasks, it takes us a few seconds, but it gives us the appearance, it gives us the impression that we are multitasking. But our brain's switching back and forth very quickly. Now, in most cases, it doesn't really matter if you're vegging out in front of the TV, whatever. You're probably not watching anything serious anyways. But where it's a detriment is when you're, say, driving. And you have to process things very quickly because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of weight and inertia and life on the road. And though there's roads and lines and signs, those aren't magical devices. Those are the things that we're paying attention to. To make sure we're navigating safely out there. And, and what researchers like Jordan Gaffman and also people uh, researchers at the University of Utah show is that you know, while we're talking on the phone, even hands-free devices we more than like double our likelihood of rear-ending the car in front of us. Because when we're talking on the phone, well, our brain wants to see these visual cues. We're used to having conversation face-to-face -face the way we evolved. We depend a lot on visual cues in conversation, body language and reading lips, whatever it is, reading the eyes. And when that person is not present that you're talking to through a phone, your brain wants to make up for that lack of visual information. In those little moments where it's trying to process, that takes focus away from the road and where things can happen so quick because we're driving you know, faster on the road or we're moving. There's a lot of there's a dynamic environment going on. If we're not paying attention in those moments, a lot can happen. So remember what they say. We're not multitaskers. Okay, since today is a Monday and Monday is a reading day, I want to share with you a story uh, is called The Courtship of Miles Standish and how it's relevant to they say is that I find... In storytelling, we often tell the same story, just a different way with new characters, scenery, backdrop, situations to overcome. But a lot of the character plots and story structure is the same. But this is how we learn, right? Good conversation is kind of developed that way because we tell each other stories. This is why I don't like when, they, when we get caught up on the they say thing because sometimes the way I package a story might make more sense to you Right, then the way they said it. So what does it matter what they say? It's what I'm telling you now. But here, here, here's a story I'm going to quickly share. It's just a two-page summary. It's not the whole story. But it's the courtship of Miles Standish. And 
is very reminiscent of a movie called Roxanne from back in 1987. It was a Steve Martin, Daryl Hannah movie. All right, this, but this story, The Courtship of Miles Standish, was actually written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's a romantic narrative poem. The setting's Plymouth, Massachusetts, back in 1621, right after the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. The story stood out because I used to go camping at a Miles Standish Park when I was younger. But I think it's a good story, and like I said, very reminiscent to Roxanne. So here it goes. Uh, On a spring afternoon in 1621, Captain Miles Standish, a short, powerfully built man of middle age and recent widower, stood in his house surveying with pride his well-polished weapons of war. If you wish a thing to be well done, you must do it yourself. He preached this to his young friend John Alden, who sat writing letters to be sent back to England on the Mayflower the next day. Since the death of his wife, Rose, the captain had invited John to share his home. Captain Standish was a man of action. He treasured but three books— Byriff's artillery guide the commentaries of Caesar and the Bible, all full enough with rumblings of war to satisfy his soldier heart. Alden, on the other hand, was a gentle student, humble, pious, as a Puritan should be, and able at the art of words, not weapons. The letters John wrote were full of the name Priscilla. He had observed her quiet faith through the colony's harsh first winter, as well as her courage at the loss of her beloved parents and brother. All of John Alden's love and sympathy privately longed to envelop and protect her. But now the captain broke silence to divulge a secret that shocked his companion. He was much impressed with the girl who went by the name of Priscilla. He thought she would be the best choice to take the place of his rose. Stunned by this disclosure, Alden's heart sank even more when Miles made a request. I can march up to a fortress and summon the place to surrender. But march up to a woman with such a proposal? I dare not. Astonishingly, he was commissioning his young friend John, the man of well-tuned phrases, to propose marriage in his behalf. John Alden was left aghast. Trying to smile and yet feeling his heart stand still in his bosom. At last he recovered enough to remind the good captain of his maxim, if he would have a thing well done. Truly the maxim is good, Standish agreed. But we must use it discreetly and not waste powder for nothing. Surely you cannot refuse what I ask in name of our friendship. Alas, friendship prevailed over love, and Alden went on his errand. His puritan training had won out. All is clear to me now. This is the hand of the Lord. It is laid upon me in anger. For I have followed too much the heart's desires and devices. This is the cross I must bear. Perhaps it was the weight of the self-imposed cross that made Alden botch his errand. For as he approached her cabin door and heard Priscilla singing the hundredth psalm while she contentedly spun her cloth, he was filled with woe. Priscilla smiled upon seeing John, showing obvious delight in his visit. Then, as they spoke, she guiltily confessed how homesick she felt. But John blurted out, Stouter hearts than a woman's have quailed in this terrible winter. Yours is tender and trusting, 
and needs a stronger to lean on. So I have come to you now with offer of proffer of marriage, made by a good man and true, Miles Standish, the captain of Plymouth. Priscilla's surprise at this offer was obvious. Alden only made things worse as he warmed to his subject, extolling the virtues of his friend. Finally, Priscilla beamed impishly and asked, Why don't you speak for yourself, John? That question undid the poor scholar, and he fled to the seashore to berate himself for his clumsiness. Is it my fault that the maiden has chosen between us? He cried to the sky. Immediately an answer thundered within him. It hath displeased the Lord. And John's sins now appeared as terrible to him as David's entanglement with Bathsheba. Seeing the Mayflower still at anchor in the harbor, he resolved to return to England and take his guilty secret of love to the grave. Better be dead and forgotten, he concluded dramatically, than living in shame and dishonor. Having consigned himself to this course, John returned to Captain Standish and recounted Priscilla's reply. When he repeated her revealing question, up leaped the captain of Plymouth. Wildly he shouted and loud, John Alden, you betrayed me. You have fed at my board and drunk at my cup. To whose keeping? I have entrusted my honor, my thoughts, the most sacred and secret. Let there be nothing between us save war and impeccable hatred. The captain might have continued this tirade, but just then a soldier arrived, bringing rumors of danger of war and hostile incursions of Indians. Buckling his sword and frowning fiercely, Standish stalked out of the cabin, leaving the chagrin Alden praying for forgiveness. The caloric leader found the men of the colony debating on an answer to the symbolic message that had been brought by a defiant Indian brave, a rattlesnake skin filled with arrows. Leave this matter to me! The angry captain exploded, for to me by the right it pertaineth. Then jerking the arrows from the snakeskin, he filled it with powder and bullets, thrust it back at the Indian emissary, thundering, Here, take it! This is your answer. Silently out of the room then glided the glistening savage, bearing the serpent's skin and seemingly himself like a serpent, winding his sinuous way through the dark depths of the forest. Early the next morning Standish and a few men marched northward, to quell the sudden revolt of the savage. Giants they seemed in the mist were the mighty men of King David. Giants in the heart they were, who believed in God and the Bible, aye, who believed in the smiting of, of Midianites and Philistines. The same day the Mayflower sailed home to England, and the little colony all assembled to bid her Godspeed. In spite of the dreadful winter they had endured, none chose to return, not even John Alden. To carry out his impassioned decision for the day before seemed more cowardly than honorable, viewed against his prospect of Indian attack. He found that renouncing the idea of having Priscilla for his wife did not prevent him from wanting to stay and protect her as a friend. After the others had returned to their homes, Priscilla overtook John and they talked. Both had time to think over their conversation of the previous day. Priscilla made a confession. I have liked to be with you, to see you to speak with you always. So I was hurt at your words and a little affronted to hear you urge me to marry your friend, though he were the Captain Miles Standish. For I must tell you the truth. Much more to me is your friendship than all the love he could give were he twice the hero you think him. Meanwhile, the brooding Captain was showing himself to be indeed a soldier of skill and insight. 
After a three-day march, Standish's party entered an Indian village where two young braves taunted and threatened him. He killed them both so quickly and effortlessly that the rest of the tribe was subdued. When word of this feat, accompanied by the head of one of the braves, was carried back to Plymouth, all rejoiced. But Priscilla wondered silently if such a hero might expect to claim her upon his return. And so, month after month passed away. All in the village was peace, but at times the rumor of warfare filled the air with alarm. Captain Standish was still out scouring the countryside, defeating all who came against him. Anger was still in his heart, but at times the remorse and contrition, which in all noble natures succeed the passionate outbreak, which in all noble natures succeeds the passionate outbreak, came like a rising tide. During these months, John Alden often walked through the forest to see Priscilla, led by pleasure disguised as duty in love and a semblance of friendship. One afternoon as they visited, Priscilla teased John that he must not be so idle. If I am a pattern for housewives as he told her she was, show yourself equally worthy of being the model of husbands. Hold this skein on your hand while I wind it ready for knitting. Onto this domestic scene burst a messenger with urgent news. Captain Standish had been killed in an ambush, and enemy Indians would likely try to burn the town and murder the people. Priscilla raised her hands in horror. At the same time, John felt all the turmoil of the mixed emotions thundering within him. The sorrow and the pain at the loss of a friend, clashing with the joy and the freedom from the bondage of that friendship. Out of that conflict, he reached for Priscilla, impressing her close to his heart as forever his own. He exclaimed, Those whom the Lord hath united, let no man put them asunder. The couple's wedding day dawned, and in spite of the imminent dangers, friends assembled in the village church to wish the young couple well. Just as the brief ceremony had ended, a form appeared on the threshold, clad in armor of steel, a somber and sorrowful figure. The bridge groom stared, and the bride turned pale. Was that a phantom? A bodiless spectral illusion? But as the figure strode into the room, all realized with amazement, Miles Standish had survived. Survived not only an Indian ambush, but the harder battle of his own pride. He went straight to John Alden, grasped his hands, and begged for his forgiveness. I have been cruel and hard, but now, thank God, it has ended. Alden answered, let all be forgiven between us. All save the dear old friendship that shall grow older and dearer. Gallantly, the captain advanced and tenderly bowed to Priscilla, wishing her joy of her wedding and loudly lauding her husband. Then he said with a smile, I should have remembered the adage, if you would be well served, you must serve yourself. Now, for those of you who have seen the movie Roxanne, that was kind of like the storyline. Right? The young firefighter fell in love with Daryl Hannah, didn't think he was enough to, you know, could say enough. He thought he was too dumb, but there was a smarter uh, gentleman, or more well-read and written. Steve Martin writes the love poems, writes the love letters to get Daryl Hannah to swoon over the young kid, but in turn falls in love with Daryl Hannah in the process through their love letters. I mean, we've seen that story a bunch of times in the movies. Uh, 
And also it came up, so that movie, Roxanne, was more noted for Cyrano de Bergerac, an old play written in 1897 by Edmund Rostad. But I think that came from this because Henry Wadsworth Longfellow died in 1882, so he wrote this before then, obviously. But it's probably not a new story. I'm sure there's a Greek myth out there for... Something along this line. Anyways, that's the whole point of kind of storytelling and creating that conversation back and forth. That's what we do. We create shared meaning. So stop pressuring each other to always come up with the source. Right? If you have it, share it. Help conversations progress along. I hope you enjoyed this, this take of the courtship of Miles Standish or Roxanne or whatever story you want to look at. I enjoyed hanging out with you guys on Monday. We'll see you Wednesday with our community engagement section. Till then, bye.